From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As tensions flare between Russia, Ukraine, and NATO, we'll talk with Congressman Jason Crow about efforts to avoid war. The threat to freedom and democracy anywhere is the threat to uh, democracy everywhere. Then the fingers of countless students were imprinted on the keys of Chieko Uno's pianos. But she lost those pianos and her home in the Marshall Fire. She says her faith has helped. You fully experience what is happening in the here and now. You don't try to reflect on the past. You don't try to envision the future. Later, a Colorado Olympian goes for gold in a little-known sport. We describe it as a cross-country ski race with precision marksmanship, similar to running up 10 flights of stairs and then trying to thread a needle. I give to CPR because it's just a great thing to support, especially during the pandemic. I felt it was important to pitch in my part. My day is not complete without CPR. And it's my pleasure to be able to give back. We are so grateful to our members who choose to be a part of Colorado Public Radio's community of support. Your donations strengthen the foundation for fact-based journalism and music exploration in Colorado. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Tensions among Russia and NATO member nations, including the U.S., are at a high. That says the possibility of a Russian invasion of Ukraine looms. Colorado's Democratic Representative Jason Crow led a congressional delegation to Ukraine. He spoke Wednesday with my colleague Nathan Heffel about where things stand now. The interview was recorded before news of the U.S. strike against ISIS. Congressman Jason Crow, thanks for being here. Thanks, Nathan, for having me. You went to Ukraine in December as part of a congressional delegation trip. What did you see while you were there? Well, I led a congressional delegation, a bipartisan delegation of members of the House Intelligence Committee uh, on which I sit. Uh, We met with senior defense officials and intelligence officials in Ukraine. And what we saw was a very dire situation uh, back in December. And it's only gotten worse since then. The risk to Ukraine is very real. And what that means for us is uh, I think we have a very real responsibility to make sure that we are defending nascent democracies, democracies that are trying to establish themselves and join the free world. And that's really what this is about. It's about a Russia threatening to take by force a democracy. And I don't think we should allow that to happen. Why should Americans care about this? Um, what do you say to them? Well, there's a lot of reasons why Americans and Coloradans should care about this. First of all, it matters when the U.S. engages in the world. Freedom and democracy matter. And a threat to freedom and democracy anywhere is the threat to to, uh, democracy everywhere. Uh, We obviously have our our own challenges at home that we are working on addressing, but that doesn't mean that we don't stop engaging with the world and defending a democracy around the world as well. Secondly, stability matters for our economy, making sure that we don't have war in Europe is really important for our economy and for our European partners and for our trading partners. Uh, so there's a very real economic connection here as well. And then the third is, you know, we, we this will not be limited to just Eastern Europe and Ukraine. There are you know, dictators and autocrats around the world who are looking very closely at how uh, democratic nations and how NATO responds to this. And if we allow this to happen without consequence, we can expect a lot more of it to happen around the world. 
After your trip, you tweeted that the U.S. should expedite and expand shipments of defensive weapons and equipment and bolster Ukraine's cyber defenses. The U.S. has been doing this. Hundreds of thousands of pounds of of munitions have been sent. President Biden has committed 3,000 military personnel to areas of Eastern uh, Europe. Um, They could be deployed in days. Representative Crow, won't Russia see this as an escalating threat that negates any diplomatic efforts seen so far? No, Russia will not. Vladimir Putin will not see this as an escalation. You know, it is Putin who has escalated uh, the situation so far. Um, he has already amassed 100,000 troops along the border. It's very likely that an invasion will occur. What we're doing is we're showing that that will not be without consequence, that NATO uh, will stand strong, that uh, the reinforcements sent in will reinforce the eastern flank. And what will actually happen is that this will have the opposite effect of what Putin thinks will happen. Uh, it will actually uh, reinforce our alliance. It will actually double down on our international security arrangements uh, and our uh, NATO partnership, uh, not make it weaker. So I think showing that resolve uh, remains very important here. You've advocated for sanctions should Russia invade. What what do those look like? And is there a line for you regarding the scale of the invasion, meaning the level of sanctions depends on a small incursion versus a large-scale attack into Ukraine by Russia? Well, there are a lot of things that we have to do to respond. We've sent defensive munitions and equipment into Ukraine. We've done training of the Ukrainian military in the past. We are reinforcing our NATO allies along the eastern flank. We uh, are bolstering cyber defenses of our partners and our allies. And at the same time, we have to make sure that we're preparing sanctions packages that we we will not allow an autocrat to take by force a free and democratic sovereign nation, that that is not tolerable in in the democratic world, and that there will be sanctions packages. I think we have to make it really clear, and we have made very clear in the House, and, and they're negotiating a package in the Senate, that any aggression, any further aggression by Russia, and let's not forget that there are actually Russian troops occupying Crimea, and there are Russian troops uh, and insurgents in Donbass and eastern Ukraine. So they've already invaded Ukraine back in 2014. But any further invasion will be met with substantial economic consequences and inflict a lot of pain on Vladimir Putin and his cronies. What kind of sanctions? Well, you look at uh, energy sanctions, you look at sanctions on the banking sector, so hitting uh, some of the uh, major uh, Russian banks, but sanctions on Vladimir Putin himself and on the oligarchs that support him. You know, he um, has support by oligarchs uh, in, in the oil and gas industry. It's largely a petrol-based oil and gas economy in Russia. So hitting that economy very hard uh, is going to be really important. And also on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline into Germany. Uh, we are negotiating with Germany and our uh, other allies right now to make it really clear that that pipeline will be shut down and it will not happen if Russia further invades Ukraine. But but won't those sanctions also affect NATO member nations who depend on Russia for oil and gas? Well, that's part of the problem here, and that's one of the reasons we've been pushing Germany and others for years to reduce their dependence on Russia. I mean, Russia uh, is an 80-plus percent petrol-based economy, but they don't have that economy without customers, uh, and Europe uh, is a big part of that. So we're continuing to push uh, Europe and our partners to divest of that dependence on oil and fossil fuels coming from Russia is really important. And frankly, it's really important from the climate perspective as well. To address the climate crisis, we need to be divesting uh, and and moving away from those energy sources anyhow. Uh, But it is doubly as important now from an economic and national security perspective. I want to talk about um, the U.S. committing more troops here. If Ukraine 
is invaded further by Russia, should the U.S. commit more troops to that area? Well, first of all, the president has made it really clear, and I agree with this, there will be no U.S. troops in conflict. We're not going to be in a situation where with a pure adversary like Russia, uh, we're going to be getting into a shooting war with Russia. That, that's not going to happen. Uh, we will support the Ukrainians. We will support our partners and allies with equipment and supplies and, and training and other uh, types of support. But we are not going to send troops into harm's way. So the, the bolstering of the defenses are at the invitation of our NATO allies, Poland, Romania, and others who have asked for additional reinforcements uh, to send a very strong message that uh, the NATO partnership is strong and we are committed to it. So that's what we're doing right now. This is a temporary increase in troops, rotational forces into Eastern Europe, but um, hopefully it will not be a long-term uh, increase in rotational forces. So then is our military role largely training and bolstering and, and not troops physically on the ground in Ukraine? Well, yeah, we are not going to put combat troops in the ground in Ukraine. That's not a part of the plan. The president's been very clear on that, and I agree with that. So uh, the increase in troops of about 3,000 right now, there's about 8,800 that have been put on alert in the United States. Uh, we're sending 3,000 separate troops uh, to bolster Romania uh, and Poland and, and Germany. Uh, and these are um, forces that uh, can that conduct maneuvers and training and do other things with our allied forces there. What is Congress's role in this situation? What is your role in this situation beyond what the president is saying and, and the actions he's taking? Well, it's to support the security aid and the packages that have been sent to Ukraine. That, that's uh, money that has to be appropriated. So making sure that that's happening. It's conducting oversight of that work. So I sit on both the House Intelligence Committee and the Armed Services Committee. Uh, those are the, the two primary committees that have oversight over that security assistance and those packages and making sure that it's happening, that it's the right assistance, that it's the right amount of assistance, and that it's getting there in a timely and effective way, but also to communicate this uh, with uh, the broader public and be really clear what our interests are and what it is we're willing to do and what it is we're, we're not willing to do as a nation. I'm somebody who has long said we can't be a nation that's used to perpetual war. We just ended our nation's longest war last year. It should have ended much sooner, frankly, than, than last year, uh, but making sure that we're uh, reining in uh, many of our uh, conflicts around the country and not expanding those is of primary interest to me and many of the people that I represent. And, and I've seen that, you know, much of the country feels wary about getting involved in another conflict overseas. Uh, Congressman, do you think that war between Russia and Ukraine is imminent? I wouldn't use the word imminent. I mean, uh, imminent means different things to different people. And, and in fact, uh, what we know is that in, in the Ukrainian Imminent means uh, it will happen. Uh, there's no, uh, there's no other alternative, and that's not the message we're trying to send. And I don't think it's inevitable. I think it's very likely. I think it is more, far more likely than not that there will be an invasion. But uh, there, there's only one person in the world that knows whether or not it's going to happen, and that's Vladimir Putin. And I'm not even sure Vladimir Putin has made the decision and knows what he wants to do yet. I think he has put all the pieces into place to do it. And at the end of the day, it will be his decision and his decision alone. That's how Russia works. And we will see in the weeks uh, ahead what that decision is. What do you take from the most recent comments by uh, Vladimir Putin saying that this is simply the U.S. goading Russia into, into invading Ukraine? What do you say to that? Well, I say it's absurd. You know, a NATO uh, country has never invaded uh, you know, Russia or any of the Eastern European countries. We're not the aggressor here. It is Russia that's the aggressor. It's Russia that has invaded Donbass and Crimea, that has uh, put 100,000 troops 
on the border of a, a free and sovereign democratic nation. So that, that's what's happening here uh, in any attempt by Vladimir Putin to flip the script and, and say that it's NATO that's the aggressor or posing security challenges to Russia is just not grounded in reality and the facts. But, you know, that's how Vladimir Putin works. He, he tries to create pretext. He tries to create uh, excuses to do something that he wants to do anyhow. Uh, but we're certainly not going to allow him to do that. That includes false flag operations, uh, which uh, we are gravely concerned about him uh, mounting operations that would make it look like there was an attack by Ukraine. But certainly that's not uh, in Ukrainians' interest. It's not in U.S. interest or NATO interest to do something like that. So we're going to be very vigilant to that, that type of threat. And real briefly, I want to move from the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, the U.S. has ended the war in Afghanistan, but there are still many interpreters and others who worked for U.S. forces. In return, they were promised they could come to the U.S., though many still remain in Afghanistan stuck in limbo. What are you doing to bring these people to safety? Yeah, well, we continue to push very hard. I'm leading efforts in the House of Representatives to stand by our, our partners in Afghanistan, people uh, who frankly, uh, helped save my life. When I was an army ranger and fought in Afghanistan in 2004 and 2005, these are people who had great personal risks to themselves, fought with us, uh, stood with us, uh, helped us complete our mission. And there are many Coloradans whose lives are owed uh, to these uh, Afghan men and women. And we have an obligation to help them. So I actually formed the Honoring Our Promises Working Group in the House of Representatives last year, uh, which is a bipartisan working group. I passed two bills uh, almost unanimously in the House, uh, the Allies Act, that increased, almost doubled the special immigrant visa program, and I continue to push the administration to vastly ramp up its evacuations, which is almost ground to a halt right now uh, in Afghanistan. So we have to make sure we're getting people out of Afghanistan who are eligible for protection uh, and then getting the help that they need and, and resettling them appropriately once they get to the United States, which we continue to do. There are still thousands of Afghans at military bases around the country who are in need of resettlement. Congressman, I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nathan. Colorado Congressman Jason Crow is a Democrat from Aurora. He spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel. The interview was recorded Wednesday. That was before news of the U.S. operation in Syria that killed the leader of ISIS. I'm Andrew Dukakis, and when we come back, I'm joined by a woman who lost her prized pianos and her home in the Marshall Fire. She says her faith and her community have helped her move forward. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Read with Colorado Matters. For Turn the Page, we've chosen All That Is Secret by Patricia Raybon, a mystery set when the KKK loomed large. A young black theologian gets a telegram to come back to Colorado and find out why her father was killed. But she could be a victim herself. Read All That Is Secret and meet the author virtually February 8th. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. Chieko Uno went to run an errand last December, and while she was out, her house burned to the ground. Uno is a piano teacher. The Marshall Fire reduced the home where she taught for nearly 30 years and her pianos to ashes. Like many other fire survivors, she's left with the clothes on her back, memories, and a desire to find consolation where she can. Chieko, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Andrea. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. December 30th, it started as an ordinary day. What were your plans that day? 
Uh, the plans was just to have a fun day with my niece. She lives in Denver and she came up to visit and our both our cell phones are really old and we decided it's finally time to upgrade. So we had gone down into Boulder to upgrade our cell phones. You saw a grass fire as you drove out with her. Did you think anything of it then? We really didn't. I mean, Boulder winds were, of course, gale force and the car was being buffeted by the winds, but that seems to be a normal part of life in Boulder is the winds and the grass fire looked little. And I had said to her, oh, it, you know, they'll probably get it out. And even if it grows, it's, there's no way it'll jump across a six lane highway. When did you realize your home was in danger? We didn't. I didn't get any emergency notification. Of course, they were in the midst of transferring the phone from one phone to the old phone to the new phone. So we didn't get any notification. And when my phone was online, my neighbor was calling saying we needed to get home right away. So you finally talked to your neighbor and she told you to come home. Yes. And the neighborhood is a fabulous neighborhood. Um, We all watch out for each other. And so it's not surprising that I got a call from actually from two different neighbors to come home quickly. And how did you get back? Obviously, there was a fire. There was, and you could see smoke. So we decided since we saw the fire on 36, Highway 36, we'd do the back route and came up South Boulder Road. And we came to a dead stop. There were so many cars trying to exit. We were there for probably three hours waiting to get down the hill. Then we saw the fire trucks coming. We watched them go down McCaslin. And then shortly thereafter, we watched the fire trucks come back up McCaslin, which told us that they weren't staying down there because it must have been so intense. It was weeks before you were allowed back to your house. What did you find when you got there? A very surreal view. It appears like a movie studio set up for a war zone or something because everything is so black and destroyed. The trees are blackened. There's nothing left. So you lost pretty much everything. And among those things, your pianos, which I'm sure are precious to you. Tell me about them. I have a huge studio because I teach. So I have an upright kawaii. I have a Yamaha Motif ES8. And then I have another Yamaha P255, which is the one we take out for gigs where there's no pianos available. And then um, my precious baby is um, a Busendorfer Grand, a seven foot four Grand that we've done concerts on. And it's a beautiful, expressive piano. You can express everything on that. It's so responsive. The Busendorfer is a very special piano, as you said. Tell us about when you first got it. (laughs) I never thought I would. It was one of my fantasies in life that I would have a wonderful grand like that. And Chris Finger in Niwot had a had a piano studio and he called and he said he had 10 Busendorfers that were touring the country and he said if you come at seven o'clock in the morning I'll let you in and you can play them all without anybody being in the store so of course I ran down and was playing on them and ended up spending the entire day with him 
And he kept saying, well, how can we get this into your studio? How many students do you have to teach in order to make the payments on this? And I kept saying there was no way. And he finally said, let's move the piano into your house. And if for some reason you can't make the piano payments, I'll buy it back. So, of course, once it's in my house, it's never going to leave. How much uh, is a Busendorfer piano? Um, they're about a hundred thousand. Wow, like a mortgage. They are a mortgage. It took me forever to pay for that piano. Can you describe the sound as compared to a traditional piano? Um, the Busendorfer has ninety-two keys versus the eighty-eight keys of a regular piano, and the extra keys actually give the bass a bigger resonance sound. And so it just has a wonderful, warm tone quality to it. You were born and raised in Colorado. Both your parents were of Japanese descent and spent time in internment camps during World War II. How much does the experience of losing everything have you reflecting on what they went through? I I think they both had very difficult, challenging lives. My father was brought to America to go to school, and I don't know the real reason why his parents and his family moved back to Japan, but he thought that he was abandoned and that his family had left him here in this country all alone. So he was a young teenager at the time. My mother was born actually here in Sacramento, but She was sent back to Japan and raised by uh, another family who she considered her mother and father, actually kind of a grandmother-grandfather. So she didn't come to this country until she had finished school in Japan. Her introduction to the States was filling out the form that said, where's your loyalty, which, of course, just deriving from Japan, her loyalty was Japan. And her primary language was Japanese. She spoke no English. So she was sent to the um, high security camp. What lessons from your mother do you find yourself returning to during this time? Throughout my life, she has always said two phrases. One is gaman, which is to be patient, to kind of be an acceptance of what is happening, and the other, it, it can't be helped. It's, it's the way things are. And was also raised Buddhist, and so from a Buddhist perspective, it's always encouraged to fully live in the moment. So those all three fit together, that you fully experience what is happening in the here and now. You don't try to reflect on the past. You don't try to envision the future. It's living fully in that moment. And you want to make the best of it, how whatever is happening in your life, you do the best that you can with it. You you live your life with dignity and respect for yourself and for others. Is it hard, though, to follow those teachings, given what you've lost? You know, the past few days, I've been reflecting on that. Um, It is a total change. Your whole entire life is different. It's 
like having lost a very special loved one, your life is changed. It's forever changed. And like dealing with death, you are busy at first with all the things that you have to accomplish. In the case of this disaster, it's all the forms and the things that you have to fill out and and the different agencies that you have to meet with. And as you get through that, there's another period of calm that comes through. And I think that's when you start to reflect on your loved one that you've lost through death, or you reflect as far as on this disaster of how it's changed your life and how are you going to go forward from here and what are you going to do? And part of that thought also had to do with the music and the teaching. There was a moment there for a while where I thought, well, maybe it's time to to stop teaching and to do something different. And part of that is because the difficulty of, one, having to find a place to live in order to continue teaching and finding instruments and all the things that you had after decades and decades of teaching, you've lost those materials. And how do you replace all of that and rebuild? And the conclusion I came to was what music means to me and how important it is to our lives and especially to our students. It's not enough that we educate for the sciences, for math, for for the intellectual side, we need music for our soul. And music teachers, art teachers, literature teachers, drama teachers are all serving that purpose of teaching us how to connect to our inner souls. And I need to get back to that place where I can reach out through students to be able to present cultural differences through music, to be able to teach through music, to be able to reconnect to our humanity through music. We need to do that. And so I've got to find a way to get back to that. Mm. Shieko, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Shieko Uno is a piano teacher who lost her home and her pianos in the Marshall Fire. She intends to rebuild her house. Investigators are still looking into what caused the fire. When we come back, we'll meet a Colorado Olympian who thinks about her grandfather each time she competes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. July 6, 1924, a funeral procession in what is now Johnstown. 200 mourners are startled by four large explosions. A meteor has streaked into the Earth's atmosphere and breaks up. Sounds like machine gun fire, whistling, screeching, rumbles, roars, and the smell of sulfur fills the air, leading some to think it's the end of the world. In fact, those mourners were rare witnesses to a meteorite fall. 27 pieces of the Johnstown meteorite were recovered over a 10-mile area. The largest, more than 50 pounds, embedded itself nearly six feet deep into Colorado soil. The rock had interplanetary origins from Vesta, the second largest and brightest asteroid in the solar system, more than 100 million miles away, somewhere between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Coble & Company.
When Joanne Reed competes in the Winter Olympics, she'll be representing the U.S. in a sport that's not center stage in America, but it's become central to her life. Reed lives and trains in Grand Junction. She's in China now, where the Olympic Games get underway tomorrow. She spoke with CPR's Stina Sieg. How are you? Uh, Where are you? And I can imagine it's been really busy the last few days. I'm doing pretty good. Just woke up. It's about 10 after 10. So that's kind of the sleep schedule we're on because we have evening races here. I'm in the um, farthest Olympic village out from Beijing, up in the mountains. It's zero degrees right now. (laughs) Oh, man. And um, have you been experiencing different COVID precautions and restrictions, you know, compared to what people in Colorado might be doing right now? Um, it is a little more extreme, I think, than um, most people have seen. When we got on the plane, there were already people in full hazmat suits, goggles, face shield, KN95, gloves, booties, fully covering their shoes, the whole thing. And every single airplane worker, every single person in the airport outside and inside had this full suit. Um, Every worker that we've seen so far from the airport all the way to the Olympic Village, to the volunteers at the venue, they all have this full covered suit. And we have COVID tests every day and we have a health monitoring app that we have to fill out every day. And our apartments here are cleaned I believe every day, though I'm not totally sure yet, and you can't be in the apartment when they come in to clean it. So with all of these measures, how how is it making you feel? And do you feel, you know, optimistic about staying healthy till you get to compete? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think they did a really good job. Um, It is a little bit like being on the moon, kind of, because the suits have this way of just masking everyone's face gender identity, almost humanity. You know, they're just white blobs moving around the village, which is really a strange feeling. You know, it feels like every Winter Games, you know, Americans have to be reminded or maybe told for the first time what biathlon is. If you're like at a party and you're talking with someone who doesn't know anything about biathlon, how do you describe what you do? We describe it as a cross-country ski race with precision marksmanship which is somewhat similar to running up 10 flights of stairs and then trying to thread a needle. Oh, so easy. Super easy. (laughs) So what's the most important thing people should know about your sport? Um, It's really, really fun to watch, actually. I think that's the most important part. We have huge TV viewership in Europe because the sport is so absolutely wild, full of ups and downs. The shooting aspect throws this total wrench into the plan, especially if it's windy or there's weird weather, fog, rain, that sort of thing. So it's a really viewer fun activity. And I think people would get really into it if they actually saw it. And this is one of the things I've been trying to envision, you know, because you're shooting live rounds. When people are watching you, how are they doing that? So our the television is really great, actually. So Normally it shows the shooter and then there's another camera view that shows the target and our targets are binary. So they're black. And then if you hit them, they turn white. So you can actually watch on screen whether or not that target flips. And then if you'd like to follow along on the on the website, there's a full data center full of every single number that goes on in our races right down to the range itself. And if you watch the shooting on the range, there's a little box that pops up and it has 
circles for every single target. There's just an adorable little picture and it'll flash red if there's a miss and the little black dot will turn white if there's a hit. So you can follow everything live, even on the screen, even if all you want to do is look at numbers. At a typical Olympics or a typical large competition, where would the crowds be, you know, watching you guys compete? They're kind of everywhere. So you can get stadium tickets and that's really popular because you can watch the shooting, which is for a lot of people, the more exciting part. Um, But you can also get tickets to go out on the race course itself. And for a lot of our races, that means you can tell who's ahead. Some of them you can't because people are going at 30 second intervals. So then you just look at your phone, you look at the website to see who's ahead. But in half of the races, you can see from the race course itself who's winning the race just by who's going by. And people get really into that. You know, they bring out beer, they bring out flags, they bring out pictures, they come in groups and their friends and family. They get really rowdy. They do a lot of screaming. Um, It's actually really fun, really great atmosphere. And when people are shooting, are they just doing that in the stadium? Yes. So we have a 30 point range with 50 meter targets. And that's a standard biathlon range. All of our courses have this single 30-point range, and all shooting is done there. There's specific safety rules and that sort of thing to, you know, keep everyone safe because we are shooting live rounds out there. I feel like biathlon is still waiting for its moment that, like, curling got when everyone started talking about curling. (laughs) Perhaps so. Um, It's still pretty, I think because we're so geographically large our country so the little pockets of biathlon are many but they're spread out so it's it's just been a long time in developing and and building that community of of youth and juniors that are picking up the sport at a younger age and it's it's gaining momentum over time but it's just the access and the and just even the knowledge that the sport exists that you know kids can come in and try it and know what it is and then go off and do something for a couple of years and maybe come back and try it again. That, that I think will be the thing that gets us going in the future. And you travel for how much out of the year? It's not like you just go to the Olympics every four years and then, you know, hang out in between them. You're, you have a very rigorous uh, competing schedule. Yes. Um, we leave in normally mid-November and we come back at the end of March. So we're gone in Europe that whole time period. And then I'm in Grand Junction probably two weeks. And then I'm gone two weeks for a training camp. And then I'll be back for two weeks. And then I'll leave for another two weeks. So about half those remaining months, I'm actually gone from home. So you came to Biathlon um, from cross-country skiing. What made you transition to the Biathlon world? And what was the hardest thing about that? I think... For a lot of us, we really enjoyed the challenge and the interesting new feature of shooting because it's a totally different sport. Um, I think all of us, even me, um, growing up were some kind of endurance athlete and then maybe cross-country skiing was our specific sport or maybe it was running or something like that. For me, it was cross-country skiing. And then at the end of my college career, um, you know, U.S. Bathlon came and, and talked to me about starting the sport. And it's so intriguing, you know, to throw in this aspect of it, this this completely unrelated and totally separate sport. And the feeling is totally addicting because in the beginning, you're you're so slow, you're so bad, you can't hit any of your targets. Um, the rifle is really heavy. It's really confusing, especially for me. I had never shot before. I did not own a rifle. I actually don't even own this one. It's my dad's. Um, and 
So to just put all those pieces together and, and try and learn an entirely new sport, but still maintaining your fitness for cross-country skiing, because you have to be doing that at a competitive elite world level at the same time. And the hard part is the union of those two. So maybe you can figure out how to shoot at low heart rate. And that's not, you know, that's just practice and and repetition and that sort of thing. And cross-country skiing is really just the hours and the hours you put in training. And then suddenly you have to merge these two things. And that is where the difficulty of biathlon lies. And when you're done with a competition, do you get like insanely tired, really hungry? Like what is your body's response to finishing? Um, what we do is really, really, really hard. It's, um, cross-country skiing is probably the most aerobically demanding sport in the world. Um, I think it's tied with rowing and that it's both aerobically demanding and you use 100% of your muscle groups. So it's really difficult. You come to the finish really tired. Um, I remember talking to a Finnish area volunteer and he said, (laughs) you have either the pukers or the fainters. And you're only one of the two. So you either fall over or you're puking, um, which I thought was really funny and is kind of true. <laughs> but basically, you come over the line, you lay in the snow for a few minutes because you're really, really tired. And then you actually go through your rifle safety check. And then you proceed forward through the finish area. You put on all your clothes because you're probably about to get really, really cold because it is really, really cold here and very windy. And you had to do it in your spandex race suit and then cool down for a while. And then normally you do start getting pretty hungry. So are you a fainter or a puker? <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely a flopper. I just, I like to flop on the ground. I've never puked after a race and I'm hoping to keep it that way. You're not the only Olympian in your family. Your mom won a medal and your uncle won medals in speed skating. What was it like to be raised in an Olympic family? That's not most people's experience. I think it does shift the focus onto really getting out there and just doing outdoor activities, outdoor sports. You know, I think everyone's parents have a job or a forte and they tend to kind of roll their kids into it. And that can be anything if you're an artist. Um, you probably, your children get into art and they know a lot of things about art. And it's basically the same for athletes. You know, my parents just especially my mom. She liked to work out. She liked to do things outside and she brought us along and that just instills a lifelong love of playing outside, which is now what I do for a living. Now, you've been to the Olympics before. Uh, You were in Pyeongchang in 2018. We always see that, you know, big parade at the start of the games. What was it like walking in that for you? It's really cool. Um, you walk out there normally last because USA is, is pretty far back in the alphabet. And all of a sudden you go from just standing in line, it kind of feels like an airport to the roar of the crowd around you and all the lights around you and the loudspeaker around you. And it's kind of like being in the center of a football stadium, I imagine, with those crowds. And it's just really fun to be out there, not just with all of the athletes from your team, but all of the athletes from all of the countries and just to see all of those people who basically love what you love and do things like you do. And you had a a heated, like a heated jacket last time, right? We did. It was really, really cool. It had a battery pack and wiring that went through the back. And then in the back, there was an American flag and the flag heated up and it was really awesome. I still have it. Are you going to get a heated jacket this time? 
You know, we really need one because right now it's zero degrees Fahrenheit outside, but apparently where the opening ceremonies actually are in Beijing, it's much warmer. And so all of our gear is actually not as warm as it was in Pyeongchang and definitely not as warm as I would like. Are they going to have the Parade of Nations this year? They will. Mm-hmm. So your home base is in Grand Junction. You know, I live here too. And, you know, it's really beautiful, really lovely, but it's not like a year-round snowy destination. So how do you keep your training going, you know, especially when you're not going to have any snow for for months? Um, So we use these training devices called roller skis, and they're a little bit similar to a rollerblade, except that the heel is actually free. So we use our cross-country ski boot and it has one wheel at each end, just so just two wheels per foot. So they're a little unstable, actually, a little terrifying. Um, you just clip in your regular ski boot and off you go on the road itself. Um, they're a little dangerous. They don't have any brakes. There's no safety equipment. There's definitely not a user manual. And so I think a lot of us in our career have taken pretty nasty crashes and there really is a learning curve to them, but that's mostly how we train. Um, the sports are similar enough that you're doing the same motion. You can work on that skiing technique. You get the same kind of feel. And then when you cross over to actual ski season, you're you're pretty much set. There's a few stabilizer muscles that get pretty unhappy in November, but that's standard practice. The cross-country skiers do it too, and you'll probably see me out on the roads one day. You were raised mostly in Northern California, and you've said that your parents were not into guns. But at the beginning of your career, there was a special gun that was connected to your family that you did use. Uh, And can you tell me about that? Yeah. So my grandfather was about age 70, 75, you know, pretty young, I would say, in his prime And he decided he wanted to try the sport of biathlon. He lived in Madison, Wisconsin. And so he went down to his local biathlon club and talked to them about getting a safety certification and maybe renting a rifle, maybe seeing what it's all about, because he liked to cross-country ski. And and that's actually how my mom learned to cross-country ski and therefore how I did. So he thought, well, what a fun thing I can go learn if I already know how to cross-country ski. So he went there, he got a safety certification, they taught him the biathlon and everything. And after that, he decided to buy a rifle and and join the club and kind of have a good time partaking in it. And then just a few years later, he was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. So that firearm was repossessed by my mom, who then called me up and said, you know, we have a a full biathlon rifle. They're really hard to get right now. you know, they're on back order, you have to get them from Europe and everything. And and your grandfather certainly can't use it. And nobody in the family knows how to use it. And you're the only elite cross country skier. Do you want to take it? And I just finished my graduate degree. And so I said, yes. And I got a hold of this rifle and forward I went. What did it mean for you in that year you were competing with that? It was really, really cool. Um, I'm not totally sure how lucid my grandpa was in that first year when I was competing with his rifle. Um, he definitely had flashes of cognitive awareness, but it can it can really be hard to tell. But I I, I like to think, and it, it did seem like he understood part of what was going on, at least in the beginning. That was 2016. And then when I made Pyeongchang, he was pretty much cognitively gone at that point, And he died just one week after the Pyeongchang Olympics. 
I'm sorry. It's just, it's great to carry that little piece of him always. Um, my rifle now, I have a new rifle and a new stock, but um, my mom actually wood burned a Lakota word in the side that means great spirit or grandfather. So even though I'm not using his rifle, I can still carry him on my back with me. Oh, wow. What is the biggest gift that biathlon has given you? Oh, my goodness. So many things. Um, Part of it is just that you get to travel the world and see all these absolutely amazing places and you get to play outside and, you know, you get to do it with your teammates and you get to do it with people who love what you love and are passionate about what you're passionate about. And if you want to go for a three hour ski in the Italian Dolomites, you can just do that because that's your job and that's what you're supposed to do. And it's sunny and it's beautiful. And, um, we love it. And sometimes when it's windy and cold and raining and we can't feel our fingers or toes, we have to remember that, that there are nice parts of the sport, even when there are the really crummy ones. And what do you hope that your future looks like in the sport? I'm Mostly I just keep going while it's still fun to me and there's still things left to learn and things that I, I want to achieve and haven't yet. Like um, some of our races have just two shooting stages and some of them have four shooting stages and I've never hit every single shot in a four stage race, which is 20 shots. I've done 19 many times, but I would like to hit the perfect 20, you know, before I retire, that one's on the list. And there's, there's a few other things on the list there. And I think when I, when I check all the boxes and do all the things and feel like I did what I came to do, then I'll be ready to retire. Well, I wish you the best with the competition and with the cold. And um, Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> Joanne Reed from Grand Junction will compete in the biathlon at the Winter Olympics in Beijing. She spoke with my colleague Stina Sieg from China, where the Games begin tomorrow. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Denver's love affair with trains is a story of shared dreams and a city on the rise. I think Cal's vision was to build the best rail system in the country. It's also a story of disappointment. It's the commuter rail line that may be finished in time for your grandkids to use. CPR's newest podcast shows how the Denver area went all in on trains and what happened when the plan jumped the track. Ghost Train, everywhere you get your podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. Businesses across Colorado are still feeling the effects of Omicron, even if COVID-19 cases appear to be slowing. The highly contagious variant has pushed businesses to revisit practices from the early days of the pandemic, and it's presented new challenges. CPR's Sarah Mulholland talked with businesses across the state. At Johnson Storage and Moving, a Denver-based moving company, crews had to get serious again about donning their masks in recent months. There was a time last summer when our customers quit caring. They, they were like, yeah, you know, I'm vaccinated. Don't worry about it. That's Don Hinman, Johnson's president. He says masks aren't the only thing customers demand these days. The company does residential and commercial jobs. And when Omicron hit, a lot of large companies started to require proof of vaccination just to enter a building. Some of these big corporate moves require dozens of people. His company doesn't mandate vaccines. And Hinman says it can be a challenge to find enough workers. 
The fact of the matter is that a lot of our crew members don't want to get vaccinated. They're, they're guys in their 20s. They, they think they're Superman. Almost two years into the pandemic, businesses are still wrestling with how to keep people safe while doing all the things that made them successful in the first place. The sheer transmissibility of Omicron makes it different from previous COVID-19 surges. Take Stone Age. The company designs and produces water blasting tools for heavy-duty industrial cleaning at its headquarters in Durango. Carrie Siggins is the CEO. She says for most of the pandemic, they didn't have that many cases. But that changed with Omicron. It's had a real impact on the company's operations. We can keep the lights on and, and make sure that we're answering customers' calls and getting things out the door. But overall, I would say productivity has plummeted because we've got so many people out sick. She says it's nearly impossible to trace infections. Now, who knows where it's all coming from, right? Because everybody's getting it. Omicron is really contagious. But with vaccines and a widely held belief that this variant isn't as lethal, people are letting their guards down. That makes things more difficult when you're trying to run a business. That's especially true in a place where people are there to have fun, like ski country. Ali Gosman owns the Last Dollar Saloon in Telluride. People were like trying so hard to avoid it before. It seemed like a lot of people were like, I'm, you know, I'd rather just get it at this point and get it over with so I don't have to worry about it. San Miguel County, where Telluride is located, hasn't dropped its mask mandate. But Gosman says the staff is really tired of fighting people over them. They've switched tactics when it comes to masks. We've definitely just tried to approach it with a, a like a gentler <laughs> directive, I think, because, you know, yelling at people doesn't work. And if people choose not to do it, it's like, OK, well, you can leave. Even in places where technically you don't need a mask anymore, it's not always that simple for businesses. At Los Amigos, a bar and restaurant with a giant deck right next to the gondola in Vail, General Manager Rodney Johnson says they held off for a little bit before lifting their mandate, even after Eagle County lifted it. But of course, for us, it makes it tougher because we are an international resort. And so with the amount of people they keep coming through here, you know, you just don't know. But even with all the challenges, staffing shortages, angry customers, changing public health guidelines, it's not all bad news coming from Colorado businesses. Definitely, the shutdowns at the start of the pandemic were really tough. But since then, things have been pretty good for a lot of places. Johnson says the bottom line at Los Amigos is healthy. And there's also been lessons and investments that will stick around. Stone Age, the manufacturer in Durango, fast-tracked an online sales platform to replace in-person meetings. Siggin says customers love it. We thought it was always going to have to be face-to-face -to, -face to really sell this type of equipment. We learned that a digital experience is something that our customers liked, and it made it really easy to get information. According to Siggins, a lot of businesses, including hers, are starting to plan for the day when COVID just becomes part of everyday life. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Michelle Fulcher. Nathan Heffel. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.